Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Skelsky, and we got a big one today, guys. We got the author of three notorious sales books. Number one is Eat Their Lunch, all about competitors. Number two is The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, and then number three is The Lost Art of Closing. And all three of these are written by the one and only Anthony Anarino. Nick, why should people listen? Anthony's Eat Their Lunch book is like the Bible for getting into competitive battles. And I lean on a lot of the things that he's taught in my everyday sale. This guy's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to going head to head and winning against competitors. So uh, I love him. He was a blast. Three, two, one. Um, 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 um. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. All right, Anthony, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. 
All right, let's get started. So the first one, probably the most important, critical if you're going to be in B2B sales, create differentiated value by starting the conversation at level four. So let me tell you what that means. It means that I'm starting the conversation at the highest level of value, the strategic value I intend to create for that customer. So it sounds something like this. Nick, thank you so much for your time. What I want to do is share with you the four trends that we think are going to have the biggest impact on your industry over the next 18 to 24 months. I'm going to share with you what our view of the implications are, some of the things that people are doing that are working to get them better results. And at the end of this, I'm going to leave you with the deck and some questions. And if there is a next step, it'll be for us to explore taking a deeper look at some of these things. So I'm going to start right there because I'm setting myself up as a trusted advisor, as somebody who's consultative, and I'm going to tell you how to make the right decisions for your business because I know more than you do in this particular case. So I'm positioning as one up automatically straight out of the gate. Okay, number two, control the process. Okay, so sales is really two things. And so I know you guys, you're almost perfect, but I'm going to make you perfect now. It's not just uh, tactical and actionable. It's practical, tactical, and actionable. So this needs to be something that you can use now, right away. So here's what I want to tell you. You have to control the process, which means at every single stage, you have to explain to the client why they need to take the next step and why it's in their best interest to do that. So I'm not letting the client tell me, well, the next thing that we thought we might do no, no, no. I'm happy to listen. But then I have to say something that sounds like this, Nick, and I know you care about the language here. So, and I know Armand does too. So the language sounds like this, Nick, would it be okay if I shared with you what tends to work best for most people when we get to this part of a conversation? Now that's a little bit of a tie down. It's not like an old school tie down, like Nick, do you love your parents? You know, like I'm not going to keep asking you. So you say, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to ask you to give me an opening. And once I have that opening, then I can say, what tends to work best here, Nick, is that if we don't start bringing in the other people on your team who are going to be concerned about what we're doing, we're going to end up so far in front of them that we're going to lose them and they're going to start digging in their heels and resisting this. So the best thing that we can do is figure out who, who are the friendlies, who are the people that we can bring in that are going to support this so we can start moving this forward. That's number two. Control the process. Love it. What's number three? Number three, you got to work on a number of things here to be good in B2B sales. And I apologize for you young guys. I apologize what I'm telling you. It's character traits. Like if you don't have self-discipline, if you can't get out of bed and you got to hit the snooze button three times, you lost 27 minutes, you're not going to be great at sales. You got to be resourceful, which means figure it out on your own. Don't look to me to give you the answer. You got to come up with something. You're a salesperson. So you have to have creativity. You also need to have the competencies and the competencies have changed. It's no longer just prospecting. It's no longer just closing. You've got to get business acumen, real actionable insights, and you got to look and sound like a consultative salesperson that can give people the advice they need to move their business forward. Those are my top three. And so one of the things that you find a lot of times is when you get started with somebody who might be below the power line, for example, go through your discovery, maybe do a little bit of demo, and you have some good affirmative buy-in from them, but then the gates go up where it's like, no, nah, I got I got to see another hour of the product or ah, I got to get your pricing before I bring you in front of everybody else. And the way that they think about pricing is going to be different from the way that someone else thinks about pricing. And so how do you think about handling and disarming some of those gates when somebody feels like they're the ones who need to control the process longer and longer before it gets to power? 
So this is back to control the process. So I'm going to say, Armand, listen, I want to do what's in your best interest here. So I'm going to promise you, even though we're going to need an executive leader to make sure that we're going to be able to get by off, and even though we're going to have to bring in other people, I'm not going to ever have a conversation without you being part of that conversation. And you and I are going to debrief no matter what. So no matter what anybody says, I'm not going to commit to anything until you and I get to talk about it. And that way we can control this process so it doesn't get out of your control. Does that make sense? And I'm selling it to you at the beginning because I don't want to get far down this. And now I have to start going backwards and trying to explain this when they've already decided now we're going to do it this way. I want to have that conversation as early as I can because I'm more interested in, look, what are my odds of winning if they don't have the conversations they need to have? If we don't bring in the right people, if we don't do it in the right order, my odds of winning go down. My question for you is like something that can differentiate us, I feel like in the sales cycle is sometimes I'll pull an executive in for my team. Like I'll get my CEO or my COO to speak with an executive at the customer's side of things. But sometimes it can be hard to like get them to want to commit to doing that. And it's certainly not a mandatory part of their evaluation. And I'm wondering like, how the heck do I convince them to take that call? Because when they take it, my win rates go up. Yeah. And and the reason your win rates go up, do you know why your win rates go up when you do that? Probably because I have an executive involved on their end. Two things. You have the executive involved on their end. And on your end, the commitment has been made at the highest level of your company as well. So your commitment to them now is a relationship. So this strategy is called king to king, king to queen, queen to queen. It's It's got a name. So it is a well, well-recognized strategy. It's very, very useful if you can do it. So we'll go to the trading value rule here. So this is for uh, Armand, Nick. I know you're selfishly asking this question for yourself, but Armand brought it up earlier. So we'll, we'll just talk to Armand about this. Uh, trading value. Anytime you ask for a commitment, you have to explain the value that the client receives from saying yes to that commitment. Okay, so... They don't have to guess at this. They're like, well, he's trying to get a deal. (laughs) True, but what's the value for this person? So my conversation is going to say, Nick, I'd like to ask you if we could have one sort of optional thing that I think would be very beneficial for your company um, as you go through this. I'd like to ask for one of my executives, probably the CEO, to reach out to senior leadership and for two things. One, We want you to have that relationship. So as we go through this and we start building this thing out together, if there's something that you need at the highest level in your company, you can call somebody at the highest level of my company and they'll know that they have the support that they need. And so that tends to give your executive more confidence and it makes it a little bit easier for them to understand what we're doing when they know that they have some recourse. If something doesn't work, how would we do that? I've already put the assumption in there that we're going to do it. Now, how? I'm asking them for the how part. So there's probably a point in the deal cycle where things are either going really well, there's a super strong business case and they're just loving the thing. But then also at times there are pieces of a negotiation where I don't know if I have any value to present them other than like, for example, let's say they're pushing me on pricing like crazy, right? How do I position a trading of value without just pulling out my pocketbook. Oftentimes we talk to a lot of people who don't have determining events for their sale. They don't have a triggering event today, right now for their sale. And so what they end up doing is just discounting in return. And so have you thought about any creative ways to drive timeline as well and make sure that there's an exchange of value? 
if you give some value to get the deal over the line, that's not a negotiation. That's a concession. So a concession means I get nothing. I'm giving, but I get nothing. What you'll notice, now that I'm going to bring it to your attention, you'll notice this. Most salespeople, when pressed, say, I'm going to go speak to my manager and I'll come back and see what we can do for you. Now you've decided to negotiate with your manager. So all you're doing is negotiating the concession that you're going to give to your customer. Okay, not great sales skills. So I'm going to tell you a couple of things that are really important to understand. I'm positioning my pricing in the first meeting. I'm positioning it. Armand, when you look at our uh, solution, you're going to recognize that we're probably somewhere between 8 and 11% higher than you're going to see other prices. And as we have this conversation, I want to make sure that I explain to you how we're going to invest the eight pennies more that you give us on every dollar so that you get a very different result than some of the other choices that you might make. So I'm positioning it. And now why am I doing this early? If I have a higher price, the reason I'm doing this early is because I want the whole sales conversation to justify that delta. I want the whole sales conversation. I don't have an easy time justifying it at the end when they say, Armand, your price is 11% higher. What can you do for me? Well, I already told you that. And I already told you what you're getting for it. And I'm going to explain to you the investments that we're making that are going to allow you to get the better result. So I have a better shot of defending it when we get there. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'm going to do throughout the sales conversation is I'm going to use a triangulation strategy. So what that means is there's a, there's a triangle. I'm not part of the triangle. I'm above the triangle. I'm looking down at the triangle and I'm going to tell you, Armand, one of the things that you're going to want to look at as you start thinking about this decision is the concessions that you're going to make. So when you don't invest the kind of money that we're investing in these particular outcomes, it means that somebody has taken the investment out of those. And that's how you get a lower price. You do get a lower price, but your concession is you don't get these kinds of things that are available to you in our solution. So I'm teaching the whole way. My job is to teach them and help them make the best decision. If I'm the one that helps them make the best decision, very likely that I win this. So I'm starting much earlier. Now, if you get leveraged at the end and somebody asks, then the first thing that you must do is ask back. Armand, you asked me to give you 11%. I'm happy to do that. But in order to do that, um, it, it can't be a two-year contract. It has to be three years. And we'll build the first two years in the first year. And then we'll bill you the, the last, the beginning of the following January. Does that make sense? Now, if you say no, then we have a negotiation. <laughs> now we're negotiating. But I need to get something. If I ask, if I ask, then I'm the one that's negotiating this. I'm a peer. I'm a peer. I'm, I'm not subservient. I'm not below you. I'm not servile. I'm here to tell you how to run your business. And if you could get this result already, you'd already be getting it. I'm not going to say those words to a client, but that's the truth. Like if they could get it, they would have already done this. So I'm going to position this. So when you ask, I'm asking back. And if you get anchored, and an anchor sounds more like this, Armand, we're ready to buy today, but we need you to give us a 40% discount. And then you say, I'm happy to do that for you. It's a seven-year agreement. You pay for the first five years, January 1. And then from there, we're going to bill you the last two years in the sixth year. And, and we're happy to do that. But I don't know if it makes sense for you. What do you think? They're going to be like, there's no way, Garmon, you're out of your mind. We're not finding a seven-year deal. That's not going to happen. And you're like, well, let's see what we can do. 
you know, it sounds like you want to get some sort of discount. An anchor is just a tool. It's because I know that you're going to say like, let me split the baby. You're going to go talk to your manager. You're going to come back and give me 20. You're going to give me 20%. But when I say yes, and then I ask you for more time, that's when they're like, I can't agree to that. Well, we'll, we'll find something. Then you're going to say, uh, Armand, we'll find something that works for both of us here. There's no doubt in my mind. It's going to be great for both of us. You can't be afraid of that thing. You can't, especially if you're just getting levered. I love that because all the time you'll get people where you quote them at a hundred and it's like, ah, I want it for 20. And it's like, what do I even say? Like, I'm like practically insulted from this thing. And so I love the pattern break where you're like, great, seven year agreement, five years paid up front. You make it as unpalatable as possible, but then eventually you've got to find some sort of middle ground or some sort of common ground here. And so how do you get them to take a step forward from there without just throwing a number out there and hoping that it sticks? You can, first thing, you should be playful with something like this and say seven years. I mean, you're probably like 42 years old. You might not live another seven years. I don't know if you want to sign this or not, but I, I've been given permission to do this if you really need this lower price. Uh, I'm still young. I'll be here in seven years, but I don't know about you. Like if you have a sense of humor and you can be playful with people, it's easier for them. And then say, you know what? I can't give you 40. There's no way I can do that. I can give you 11 though. I can give you 11 if you give me a third year. I think that makes sense for both of us. And look, don't worry about the contract. You're going to have me under contract. So I hope that you're not worried about signing a three-year contract. You should be counting on me to deliver value for you for three years. You hope I'm under contract. And you just have to engage with things like this. Anthony, what do you do in a situation like that where you push back hard on the 40% with the, you're almost like reverse anchoring them. The framework I see is you're like, I'm trying to break the anchor. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, well, you give them something equally ridiculous. They ask you for something ridiculous. And I love that because what I would normally do is be like, oh my gosh, I don't think we get, we can get close. And then I do that thing where I go back to my boss and he's like, well, Nick, we can't even get close to that. And then they've already set us down there. So it's yes. And then something ridiculous back. Well, what do you do in the situation when they say, well, if you can't do 40%, competitor B can, and they're, they're priced 40% lower. How do you respond to that? Nick, what concessions do you think you're making to get a 40% reduction over the cost to get the actual outcomes that we've been talking about? And if you don't know, I'll share them with you. Your support is going to be a ticket that gets answered four days from now. Like, I mean, I'm going to just go down the list. These are the concessions that you're making. Anytime you get a lower price, you're taking money out of your own investment. Like you're taking the money out of your solution. You're taking it out of your solution. When you start making concessions, you think that they're coming out of their profit. They don't have a 40% profit margin to take that out of. That, that isn't happening. You're giving something up and that's their model. And that's the difference between their model and our model. I would have already taught them the models you know, there's a very low price way to do this. All the frills are gone. You're not going to get the kind of support. It's not going to be developed over a longer period of time. But if that's okay, that's one choice that you can look at. If you want to have something that's going to grow with you, that's going to support you, that's going to be invested in, that's going to have a real partner, that's going to take your, your feedback into consideration and make sure you succeed, you're going to pay a little bit more for that. Anthony, you're kind of getting into the talking about competitors side of things. and that's an area where like the sale that I do, we are always kicking out an incumbent and there are always competitors involved in the deal. And sometimes I even have customers ask me, well, how do you compare to X or how do you compare to Y or tell me why you're better? And I'm wondering, 
Can you talk through some of the best practices of what people should be doing when they're in a competitive deal, other than the level four conversations we talked about earlier? Yeah, no, there's a whole bunch of things. So talking about competitors is fun as long as you do it right. So I'm going to go like Armand, this guy, he's, he's been in prison three times. Like, how are you going to work with this guy? He's a terrible, they're a terrible. No, you're not going to say a bad word about your competitors. It's, it, it doesn't help you at all. And it looks like you're being defensive about you. So you can't do that. Nick, listen, there's a lot of really good companies that do the same work we do. And we have some friends that work at all of these companies. We know each other. They're good people and they do things really, really well in a lot of cases. We just have wildly different delivery systems. So the model for delivery for us is so different than theirs. The one area where we're going to argue with each other, like when we get at a conference and we bump into each other, I mean, it's like a gang fight over the model that each of us do because they take some money out of the model to do things in a different way. And we believe that you have to invest more in this to get the better outcome. So they're really good. But if you want a different result, and I think based on our conversation so far, Nick, we're probably a better fit for you. But there's a lot of good people that do this. We believe that our model is what's most important. So now what I've done is I've said, everybody else gets pushed off of the table over this way, right? I'm like, I'm sweeping all of them over. The model's wrong. This is the right model for you. And now I have time to talk about that. And if they say, which of your competitors should we be talking to? I would say, whichever one I would recommend to you, I would regret having you talk to them because their model is wrong. And I'm not, I don't want to help you with that particular decision. But what we could do is have a better conversation about how I get you these strategic outcomes. I want to dig in on this one a little bit because you mentioned some points around, hey, what what concessions are you going to be giving up? And you're talking on the big things that they're going to be losing out on. But one of the things that's tough is if you work for any marquee B2B SaaS companies, most of the items on the feature checklist are the same, right? And you got to avoid feature battles. And so how do you talk about what you do differently from a model standpoint without just getting stuck in the, oh, these guys check the box just as much as you check the box? I have to switch the conversation to buying outcomes. I have to do this. The only differentiator you have, okay, so this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say to your audience. The only thing you have to differentiate yourself is the sales conversation. That's all you have. Your company is a good company. Your competitor's company is a good company. You got a good product. They got a good product. Their product produces the outcome. Your product produces the outcome too. Everything's even. That's why the levels of value matter. When you're at level one and two and three, everybody's even. Okay, so where do you differentiate the sales conversation? I have to create greater value in that conversation by teaching you the models, by helping you understand concessions you might be making without knowing, by justifying the delta to invest a little bit more, to making sure that your team is on board and that I've got their consensus that you understand that the solution is being developed and tailored for you. I have to manage that process to differentiate the experience that they have. They're going to make a decision based on who do they believe is going to be most helpful to them getting the best result for their company. When you go to my company's history, our logos that we've won, the people that are on our board, our investors, all of that, no value for them. When you give them the aha moment, and, and they, you say something to them like, over the last 
12 months, what are the most strategic changes you've made to the way that you operate this particular process? And what have you decided to do over the next 12 months? And they're like, that's a good question. That means like you just turned the light on. The light is like, we should we be looking at the process itself? Yeah, probably you should be looking at the process itself. And there's multiple ways to do this. I'm the one that's going to give them the best experience in the sales conversation. That's the greatest advantage that you have. It's 100% in your control. And I'm going to tell you, my the secret to why I became a good salesperson is I sold a commodity. It's, it's way harder. Like you, you can't lean on your, I sold light industrial staffing. Okay. Are they going to show up? Maybe. Are they going to call off? Yeah. Are some of them just going to disappear? I'll never see them again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, all of the bad things, all that's going to happen to you. Like you have to be a good salesperson because you have nothing else. My friend, Jeb Blunt, uh, fanatical prospecting, you know, Jeb. So Jeb's my best friend. I was talking to him right before I talked to you guys. He sold uniforms. They're blue, made by the same manufacturer that makes the uniforms for his competitor when he was in, in sales. How are you going to differentiate? It's the same color of blue. Like it, there's no difference. You, you have to understand that it's you that make the difference. You're the value proposition. So what do you have to do if you're the value proposition? You got to get business acumen. If you sell to pharmaceutical companies and you didn't listen to CNBC and you don't know that this is going on, you don't know to pick up the phone and say, Nick, listen, I was just listening to Kushner and I don't know where you are politically and I don't care. But the most favored nation thing is going to cost you to have to reduce your overall operating expenses so that you can continue to innovate. I got three primary ideas I want to share with you and how we can help you do that. So that's why you listen, because you have to be a business advisor. You have to be consultative. You're telling somebody else how to run their business, which means you damn well better know something about business. I want to ask you sort of a situational question about the competitor side of things. So I'm working with a customer right now that's in an evaluation and they've eliminated a lot of people and it's us versus a competitor, right? And I had a call with this guy and we're both still in the deal. They're still looking at us. They're still looking at the other competitor, but the guy's telling me that they're leaning towards the other competitor. And he sort of gave me a reason and I understood that. And I'm curious, how do I respond? So basically, they're looking at X software that does two things, and then they're looking at us plus another vendor. So me and this other vendor would both need to win the deal in order to beat out this one other competitor. And they like the fact that there's an all-in-one as opposed to two systems bolted together. Yeah. It's better if you have a way to talk about it. I I don't know that you can, but let me tell you what you could try is to say, you know, feature X, we understand why it's important to you but we don't understand why the integration is important to you because the outcome is what you're really after. And in these other areas, we think our outcomes are going to be more important to you and they'll be more certain for you and they'll be better for you. But we'll have one of them that's going to have a partner that we bring in that's best in class. And the reason they're best in class is because they do it different than the way that you're looking at X because it allows people to get better outcomes. And then Nick, this is what I'm going to say. Can I ask you, for 15 minutes to have a conversation with me and the person that I'm going to be bringing in on this partnership to explain to you the greater outcome that we can get you and how we'll make it seamless for you in the the tailoring and the customizing that we'll do on our side to make sure that this isn't hard for you to do. 
can I at least have one shot to share that with you? Because I really want your business and I want you to consider me a partner that's going to work with you no matter what the need is. And this is just one example where we'll be creative, we'll be resourceful, we'll put the time into it. And I think that makes us a good partner. What do you think? Anthony, this has been awesome. I've taken legitimately two and a half pages of notes here. We're running out of time, so we got to move to the final question. The final question is this. We've talked about a lot of good things that salespeople should be doing and should be saying, but we got to talk about some bad habits. So my question for you is, what is one bad habit that you see most salespeople doing that they need to quit, kick, and stop because it's hurting them more than it's helping? Everything has to come back to, this is about getting you the outcome. It has nothing to do with us not bragging on us, not telling you about our awards, none of that stuff. It's all about let's get you the outcomes that you need. And I'm the one that can teach you the best way to do that. So that's the thing. Get rid of all like the first eight slides in your deck, either print them and then burn them just like a ceremonial burning. So you know that they're gone and then bury their ashes in like four parts of your yard or something. So they can't come back together, do that. And then like start the conversation at the right place for them. So people go like, this is different. If you want to be differentiated, it isn't going to come from your company or any features. It's going to come from you. So that's the part that you got to get your head around. Beautiful. Anthony, this has been an awesome episode. Anything you want to plug before we jump off here? Outboundconference.com, June 15th to 18th in Atlanta. Me, Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, Victor Antonio, Meredith Elliott Powell, Sherry Levitin, Larry Levine, and uh, a host of other people. So uh, if you can make it, outboundconference.com. If not, and you can't make it to Atlanta, I get it. You can buy a virtual now for the first time. So uh, that's where we would point people. Beautiful. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the show. And everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Cheers. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Your top four takeaways from the episode with Anthony and Arino include number one, when they ask you for that crazy discount, your line in return is absolutely great. It's going to be a seven-year deal with five years paid up front. You have to match unreasonable asks with additional unreasonable asks. Number two, wildly different ideas. 
when you're talking about a competitor. It's not about this feature. It's not about that feature. It's that we are a completely different model and they got the model wrong. Number three, focus on the outcomes, not the little features in a commodity sale. The only thing that you can focus on is differentiating in the sales process and knowing the big problems they need to solve more than the other guys. And then number four, you have to tell the customer what's best for them. And what that might mean is what's best for them is getting exact buy-in. And you've sold this thing way more times than they've bought it. And so help customers get to power because you know it's in their best interest to get a deal done. All righty, Nick, how can people help us here? I kind of want to impress Anthony and show him that like we've got a pretty active audience who likes the show and liked him. So if you listen to this and you liked Anthony, send him a LinkedIn note and say, I heard you on 30 Minutes to President's Club. Thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes.